For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the one verse you know, but we're going to go farther than that. But before we do, uh, I'm over here. I'm Michael. Hi. I'm Lou. Lou. Lou's over there. How's it going? And we're here to tell you that we don't pick where Satan stakes his claim. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting title. It's going to be one of those days. So what in tarnation are we talking about? Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about the culture war. Dun, dun, dun. And why it matters. So before we do that, though, foundations. Foundations are important. And understanding them rightly is importanter. <laughs> More important. <laughs> Didn't you ever watch Zoolander? Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's been a while, but that... that he wants to open the line. school for kids who don't read good. Yeah. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite jokes, because years ago, um, my wife uh, went to a small private, small private high school that basically exists just because the public schools are such garbage in the area, in the middle of nowhere, southeastern United States. And I got a laugh years ago when we were, we were dating, and she brought home her student handbook. They give you a student handbook at the beginning of every year. And you have to read through the rules of the school and the expectations of the students and all that. And you have to sign off on it and send it back to school. So that, you know, telling you, you know. So when we suspend you later for doing something stupid, you knew the rules. Right, right. So I was reading through it. I was either a high school senior or a college freshman myself. And I'm reading through her, her student handbook thing and looked at it and went, wait a minute. Because one of the sections was academic objectives. And under the, um, the English the concept that they wanted to, uh, one of the things they wanted to accomplish was teach the students to read and write good. Now, if you're not a native English speaker, you don't understand what the problem with what I just said. The school put out a student handbook with an academic objective that is grammatically incorrect in the English section. Mm -hmm. You don't read or write good. You read or write well or properly mm -hmm. i'm like didn't the english teacher read this first and cameron's like stop laughing at it i'm like no i can't stop laughing at this it's so funny that you still remember that though oh yeah it's been 20 years or yeah. more than 20 years at this point but yeah I'm, i i still i still laugh about that to this day i'm like your school put this out and couldn't bother to get the english teacher or the english teacher didn't know i don't know which one's better on that but we're just gonna go with it so <sighs> such fun so anyway, so you know the John 3.16 that we read. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But realize the thought doesn't stop there. So what shall we do, Christian? We shall read the entire context. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is important. Jesus made this point in his earthly ministry himself, that he is here for what? to gather the lost sheep of Israel, to redeem people. The judgment is coming later. Right. We don't so have to worry about that. That which is lost. Exactly, Luke 19. Mm -hmm. So we don't stress there. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's an important verse. <clears throat> The reason why the son doesn't have to judge is because you've been judged already. Yep. The message is clear. The work is clear. The work is being accomplished. Your rejection of it is your judgment. 
I don't have to condemn you. You have already condemned yourself. Which, unrelated aside, Christian, this should be something that encourages you in the world, that your goal in existence is not to, when in doubt, get a bigger Bible. <laughs> right. We're, we're not sent here to judge people. That, I don't have to. That's already been determined. It's, it's been accomplished. It's above our pay grade anyway. Well, agreed, but, but, but it's already been accomplished. What is my call? To proclaim Christ. Well, what if they don't listen? Then you shake the dust off your feet and you move on to the next thing. Right. I don't have to stress about this because your sins will either be judged in Christ or, eh, I got some bad news for you, homeboy. <laughs> And that goes to the very heart of the gospel. This is why the people of God can evangelize. This is why the people of God can enter into the public square and can do the work that needs to be done in this world because we can actually love people. Why? Because God takes care of sin. God changes hearts and minds. We simply proclaim the truth. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Now, how do they know that? This is an important question for you, Christian. How do they know that their deeds were evil? Just think for a second. They know because they know the truth of God. They have a law written upon their hearts. Always remember, you had two categories of people, Old Testament, right? You had Israel and you had Gentiles. Israel received the written commandment. They received the law from God. Mm -hmm. They had no excuse. Well, the Gentiles had a law written upon their heart. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? They knew too. They may not have known, excuse me, they may not have known the exact interworkings of how they loved the Lord their God, but they knew they were supposed to. Well, well, Paul talks about this, and he, he basically says when they do you know, by nature, what mm-hmm. is written in the law, it proves that God wrote this yes. on their hearts. They know better. This is why Paul could start where he starts in Romans 1, right. that you're without excuse. You know that you know, and we know that you know, and you know that we know that you know, and therefore, sit yeah. down and shut up and pay attention. Right. I don't have to worry about this because you already know. So what is my goal? My goal is not to condemn your sin. My goal is to shine a very, very, very bright light upon it. How, pray tell, do I do that? I've had this argument before. You don't go to Walmart or wherever it is that you make grocery shop. You don't go to the store and live your life and put your groceries in your cart and then go check out. And then someone snatches you at the end of the line and goes, please tell me about your God. I observed your godly behavior and how you were living on the third aisle when you picked up the bread. And I must know what I must do to be saved. (laughs) That would be something. That conversation has never happened. I don't think it ever will happen. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to say never because, you know, God may decide to smack me and do that one day just to prove a point. But so I'm not going to say he won't. But at the same token, that's never the way this works. Instead, what happens? You proclaim Christ. You proclaim his mercy in the face of sin. When they challenge you, you point out what sin is and you trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. This is what goes on. The reason why they want you to shut up, the reason they want you to sit down is because they love the darkness. Because the light reminds them of the reality that they already know. 
You know, they don't want to be around people who kind of rain on their little parade. Yeah, well, who does? Uh, show them, you know, that their lives are not really that great, and they're not living up to even cultural standards. They're, they're and based. There, therefore, the problem becomes you for saying something. Right. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So what, does it, what do they do? What, what does the darkness do? Well, it designs cultures, and it designs systems, and it designs worldviews, and it designs institutions that will do what? That will soothe its conscience. That will tell it that it is okay. The darkness will attempt to breed more darkness so that the light is never shown in the way. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is also why they demand that you follow along. Because as long as you're going another way, you are shining a bright light. As long as you are still proclaiming... <laughs> gotcha! As long as you are still proclaiming what is right and good... You are exposing the darkness for what it is, which is empty and, well, face it, dark. It's amazing that darkness is dark. Who'd have thunk that? Now, that's a quick run-through of this section, and that's intentional because, I mean, this is a spot that a lot of people know, and we could, we could probably do 20 more minutes on this little section and go into depth, but I want to make sure we highlight these, this point here. Because the world is darkness... And because the darkness seeks to insulate itself from the light, and you are called to proclaim Christ, and you are stuck living in the world, by definition, there is going to come a place where your life and their life run into each other. You now have a decision to make. Do you surrender everything around you and live out personal holiness? Or do you actually confront the darkness as you see it in an effort to do what? In an effort to proclaim Christ and his mercies so that your light will shine, so that the Holy Spirit will do his work. That has been the, the friction point of the world for the last, well, you know, couple millennia. But really in Western civilization, the last, what, 50, 60 years? Mm-hmm. Hard to believe the 1960s were 60 years ago. <laughs> That's a little frightening, isn't it? Yeah, I'm getting older. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't born in the 60s. I was born just after that era. But well, you, when you but when you grow up, it, you know, you you have a tendency to lock your brain into certain time frames and thinking that the cultural revolution and the counterculture of the 60s was 60 years ago. Wow! Like most of those hippies are 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 pushing 80 now. Right. Right, and I and I know that people of faith during that era were facing some of the same issues that we're facing today, and always will. Now, here's what's happened though: as culture unmoored itself from this is the phrase that drives people nuts. So you ready? Go for it. As culture unmoored itself from a Judeo-Christian foundation, <laughs> I know I know that that phrase irks people. But it's a shorthand way of describing a, a biblically founded worldview, which is what Western civilization was built upon. 
our law system is built upon a biblical worldview. Our court system, our economic systems, our understanding of family are ultimately culturally built upon a biblical foundation. Yeah. Philosophically speaking, that is a Judeo-Christian worldview because there's really not a whole lot of distinction between the law system that would be constructed in a secular society by Christians or Orthodox Jews. Stipulated? Can we can we yeah, affirm I that? Yeah, I agree. Okay. I affirm. Just making sure. Yeah. So, I, I just th- I think it's interesting uh, uh, the term uh, I I think was coined uh, because there was some anti-Semitism and they wanted to show uh, solidarity between the two. Well, because it, it Abrahamic well, we, faiths. We've said this before. The Old Testament is a book without an end uh, an ending, and the New Testament is a book without a beginning. Right. You need you need both to to work together they had they they fulfill and explain one another and, and then so, that's, that's a great yeah. analogy and, I, and you use another analogy you know one book one message and you i bet. like i like that because that's it's exactly what it is it's not it's not something new as, as in it's never been talked about before it is something that's been spoken of from the beginning and elaborated on in the apostolic scriptures and because of that it formed a it formed a kind of glue culturally that held a that held Western civilization together. Now, in the last well, probably seventy years or so, that glue has been has it's been it's been doused with some acetone multiple times. Mm. I, th- I mean, you can go back to the uh, you can go back to the beatnik culture of the fifties, the the counterculture, the cultural revolution stuff of the sixties and seventies, even the the greed is good culture of the 1980s, the, cor- the corporate mantra. Culturally, these are rejections of a biblical foundation. I mean, if you go back to the, the corporate yuppie world of the 80s even, that's a rejection of a biblical foundation because it's a rejection of the balance of family life in an effort to you know, make all the money and get all the stuff. It's an, it's an imbalance. Scripture is balanced. There's work and there's life and there's family, and these things all come together. So as we've rejected that, we've created more and more friction points. And as that rejection deepens and those friction points rub on each other more and more, they create in and of themselves more friction points. This, I'm telling you this because this is how your modern-day culture war functions and what it is. Mm-hmm. They are the interactions between a formerly grounded worldview and a now unmoored worldview as they are kind of drifting apart and they are interacting then with people who are still attempting to hold to a grounded worldview that is founded upon biblical ideas. This is the place where we interact with the world and have to decide whether or not we can say this far and no farther. That is going to be a different place for everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. So my joke would be, you know, your mileage may vary. You know, terms and conditions may apply. Because what you're willing to tolerate at the grocery store may be different than what somebody else is willing to tolerate in the grocery store. But the one thing that is for, is, is certain, none of it's going away. Right. So you need to determine how you're going to interact with it, the way you're going to interact with it, and what that interaction is supposed to mean. I have to tell you that story so that this story makes sense. <laughs> All right. Are we confused? Have we made sense so far? I think we make, we're okay. making sense. All right. My, my, my favorite random evangelical. 
mm-hmm. Russell Moore, formerly of the should be non-existent ERLC, and if you don't know what I just said, the Southern Baptist Convention has an entity called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Long story short, it's the lobbying wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. That, that entity shouldn't exist. I have been on record on that for over a decade. That entity shouldn't exist. It's a waste of money. That's not how you influence culture. You influence culture through people, what, I, what John 3 would advocate for, and an understanding of how you live your life. So Russell Moore was formerly the head of that organization, and while he was the head of that organization, he did not make a lot of friends. <clears throat> well, I think he's the former head of that organization. And one of the things that drove a lot of rank-and-file evangelical um, Southern Baptists the wrong way was his seeming capitulation on a lot of the cultural battles, his vacillating and waffling on what most people thought were easy-to-pick-aside issues. This article that he wrote, I think, shines some light on that. Yeah, And it also is instructive for how the multiple segments of what is deemed evangelical, and I'm air-quoting that, evangelical Christianity views itself in the world. In Christian, this is something you need to think through. So, this is the start of the article. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt wrote this week in The Atlantic that we are all now living on the other side of the Tower of Babel. Okay, I have multiple questions about this. Number one, what are the things that qualify you to be an expert in moral psychology? I wouldn't have the... I don't even know what that... First clue, yeah. Like, you ever ever have somebody tell you something and you're like, I understand what all the words you just used mean, but I have no idea what you just said. Moral psychology. Psychology is the study of your thinking and how it influences your actions. It is based upon a secular worldview. I don't know what foundation psychology has for moral good and bad. Aren't they? It's isn't all subjective. Every, isn't in, everything in built realm, on a right? hierarchy of needs and wants and mm-hmm. goods? Anyway, so, yeah, that's right. a different discussion for another day. But anyway, so we're on the other side of the Tower of Babel. Hate, an atheist, big shock, doesn't mean that literally, of course. Well, why not? The metaphor points to America's fracturing into culturally tribal factions, which Hate argues reached its tipping point in 2009 when Facebook pioneered the like button and Twitter added a retweet function. That was the tipping point. Mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter was the tipping point. Because your grandma can now like your baby pictures on Facebook, culture is destroyed. (laughs) We've all gone downhill there, huh? I mean, there's no arguing with how influential those those platforms. Agreed. I'm making I'm making light of it. Yeah. But I just love that. That's the mark. Facebook's like button was the end of Western civilization as we know it. (laughs) <laughs> right, and, and what he's tying it to in, in a biblical sense. It's amazing how they, he draws that correlation, even though he is a, probably a self-proclaimed atheist. Well, yeah, he, he marks it so. Although culture wars have always, always existed because you have darkness versus light, mm-hmm. these technological developments encourage triviality, mob mentalities, and the potential for everyday outrage like never before. I don't necessarily disagree with that statement, yeah. but the problem isn't that they encourage that. The problem is that humanity's fallenness encourages that. Mob mentalities have always been a thing. Always. Um, my, uh, I have a favorite phrase that I use in my house. Never underestimate the power of stupid people in large numbers. Oh, yeah. 
because humanity does a lot of dumb things when humanity gets to function as a monolith, which is, again, why, Christian, you are called to salt and light, because what you are doing is living in the world, and you are deconstructing. Ooh, I get to use their favorite words. You are deconstructing their monolithic thought, because what the darkness really wants is more darkness. Because while my sin over here may look different from somebody else's sin over there, it's that old Motel 6 commercial. Do you remember they, um, they used to do those 30-second commercials and it was just a blank screen? Yeah, I think I, I think Cause, cause Motel, Motel Six. Right? Yeah, because Motel Six's whole thing was like, you know, it's it's a thirty dollar hotel room that doesn't that's not actually a thirty dollar hotel room back in the day. I don't know what they are now, but but Motel Six used to do a thirty second commercial where it was, I'm Tom Bodet from Motel Six, and he sit there and talk to you. And yep. the entire commercial was a black screen, and his whole point in the commercial was, this is what our forty nine ninety five room looks like when you're sleeping in it. And here's what our competitors' hundred and twenty dollar a night room looks like when you're sleeping in it. And the whole point was, well, at the end of the day, you're asleep who cares what the room looks like mm-hmm. uh, sin does the same thing your sin over there may look different than the sin over here so the sin of abortion on one end is a different category from the alphabet soup crowd on the other side but the darkness doesn't care because in the dark it doesn't matter because nobody's paying attention you come along and start shining a light and you know, and now we have to deal with this and answer this. This is one of the reasons we have cultural wars. This is one of the reasons why humanity has a mob mentality, because sin wants the mob mentality. Right. You shine your light somewhere else. You leave me alone. You don't talk about what I do. It's basically sin's version of mad, mutually assured destruction. Right. I go on sinning into oblivion. You do the same. We never mention it to one another, and we'll pretend like it's a different problem, and then we'll move on from there. That's where the issues really lie. The cure for that is gospel truth. The cure for that is not a surrendering of the battlefield of the world. It is an engagement in the battlefield of the world by proclaiming what? What is right and good and true. Yeah, you're proclaiming the kingdom. Yes, absolutely. For hate, this descent into Babel means not a new culture war, but a different kind of culture war. Uh Uh-oh, is it a kindler, gentler culture war? I don't know. War is war. The softer side of Sears culture wars. Mm-hmm. Where the target is not people on the other side as so much as those on one's own side who express any sympathy for the other side's viewpoints or even their humanity. I love the, uh, the construction here of the straw man. Now, I'll agree with one thing. Are the people on the other side the enemy? No. 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 The worldview, the systems that they've constructed, the lies that they've told themselves, they are the enemy. Yeah, they're deceived. Now, that's important because when you claim to be on my side and you begin to express sympathy for the worldview on the other side, you may not be aligning with them in action, but what are you doing? Sounds like you're kind of joining them. You're aligning with them in thought. And since they're not the enemy and you're not the enemy, what is the enemy? the thought process that you're trying to give me sympathy towards. Right. This reminds me a lot of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, yeah. When Lot and his wife were leaving, and she's looking back and longing for it, you know, and, well, we all know what happened there. This becomes the breakdown is he's trying to tell you, well, we rightly don't see the, uh, the people as the enemy. What happens when someone on your side expresses a sympathetic 
not a sympathetic tone, but a sympathy for the other side's viewpoints. Right, right. I that's, want to understand your viewpoints. Right. I want to be sympathetic as to how you fell into those viewpoints. I have no sympathy for the lunacy of sin. None. Right. right. Exactly. I don't want I don't want sympathy for it in your life, and I don't want sympathy for it in my life either. Mm. You rip the band-aid off. Yeah. Or as I like to put it, you take the shovel and you hit it, put it, you apply this shovel to the face every single time. Politically cultural, I'm sorry, political, cultural, or religious extremists whose goal is to produce viral content target dissenters or nuanced thinkers on their own team, making sure that democratic institutions based on compromise and consensus grind to a halt. I've long asked the question, and this doesn't make me any friends either, about the Christian involvement in politics for this very reason. Politics, by its nature, requires compromise. Like, you can't make political governance a zero-sum game. It's got to actually be an institute of compromise. I get some of what I want, you get some of what you want, everybody's miserable, and the country functions like it's supposed to. That's how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. What happens when you put an orthodox Bible believing Christian in that situation? Well, our culture has, man, we have shifted so far left that even conservatives would look a little more liberal to people who are actual Bible believing. Oh, agree. And that's, but so that's my it, point. I mean, but that's what happens. What, so, what hap- so, how do you compromise? What do you give? Without corrupting yourself, do you see what I'm getting at? See, that's the problem. We should not be cor- we we should not be um, we we shouldn't be compromising when it comes to biblical moral values. I agree, period. and that's my point, though. So, what happens when you're in government and you have a faction that entire identity and entire political power is based upon corruption of morals? I mean, this is some of the interest see, groups this is that the, are going on. Okay, so this is the problem I see. Listen, nobody is saying that our, our country was founded as a Christian no, nation. Not, no, not even but a little bit. we were founded on Christian principles, and, and many of our leaders, you know, one nation under God, uh, you know, God has... Oh, just look at our laws. You mentioned it earlier, Judeo-Christian yes. uh, foundation, all of... Uh, there are still pictures of the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments in some of our mm-hmm. our government buildings. Uh, they like to cover them up. Now, now here's my but, thing, though. So what happens when 60 years of cultural revolution makes its way into the halls of government and then demands an undoing of some of those moral foundations? If you are a Christian in government, what can you give them so that government can function? Man, I don't think we should compromise there. I mean, I'm not saying you yeah. should either. My point what is, what can we give them? There's nothing. There's nothing you, there's nothing you can we, give them. We should remember where we came so from and remove. This the... becomes the difficulty in our world. The reason why things grind to a halt is because the culture wars are not about the function of government. They're about the foundations of moral uh, function. They're 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 basically about the the foundations of morality and where it comes from and what it looks like. You can't surrender on that on either side. I mean, it's not like the darkness is going to come over and say, ah, we kind of like this lukewarm light you have, so we'll, uh, we'll take some of it. No. They That's want their reaction. Period. They want darkness. Yeah. So there's nothing that no side is willing to give and take. Yeah. Therefore, now, from this point forward, 
I do not fault the Christian in government who goes, look, I can't compromise on any of this. I'm going to say something that's going to annoy somebody. I also don't fault the Christian in government who says we have to get X, Y, or Z done because that's how our government functions. We have to pass bills. We have to fund institutions that are, es- that are essential to our country's governance. You're like, like we have to pay for our military, which means I have to surrender this. I'm not personally surrendering, and I'm surrendering it on behalf of our country. Because, again, just like we don't legislate from the top-down morality, we don't change morality from the top-down either. We change it from the bottom up. That's exactly the problem here. And that's where these wars become so important is because what's happened culturally is we try to wage them through proxy. The church is trying to wage a culture battle, cultural battle by shining a light through political parties and political actors. And it, do, yeah, it can't, yeah, can't work. For sure. What has to happen is as you live your life, you must testify to the good works that Christ has accomplished, and you must testify to the good news, and you must stand firm as you go and where you live. That's where the work is done. Now, because that is the case, I can be as bold and abrasive as necessary. And when I say abrasive, I don't mean insulting. I mean unmovable and unmoving. The culture would find that abrasive. Why won't you just no? Mm-hmm. That's abrasive to the culture. My call from Christ is to be very abrasive in that manner by standing firm for the truth. I do the gospel a disservice, and I, uh, I abdicate my authority when I demand that my political proxy do it on my behalf. That becomes the problem. Am I making sense? I'm trying to draw you, a fine line. No, you line. do. You make perfect sense. And, you know, I think you say this a lot, but we have to start at home. We have to disciple our children. We have to... Uh, do we, one of the problems I see is they've, they've hamstung the, the, the people who call themselves believers by saying God can't be in our schools. Agreed. They can't be in our governments. We can't have any of this. And what's not happening at home is proper discipling so that because basically what's happened is they've taken control of the minds of of the younger generation and here we are 60 years after 1960 yeah and we're saying man what a mess we got here it's because and that's because most of the surrendering and compromise has typically gone one way right exactly let's continue so what should a christian posture be in this post-babel world James Davidson Hunter warned over a decade ago that much of American evangelical culture war engagement was based on a heightened sense of resentiment. He said this went beyond resentment to include a combination of anger, envy, hate, rage, and revenge in which a sense of injury and anxiety become key to the group's identity. I don't actually disagree with that, with that idea. My pushback would be, why is that the case? And the reason that's the case is because it seems like the people that claim to agree with me, the Russell Moores of the world, don't actually stand firm for anything. So as the darkness pushes in and I am standing firm and being abrasive in the culture, my leadership, air quotes, is not doing the same. Hence I have, yeah. hence I have fear. Hence I have anxiety because I don't know when the line stops. And it seems like the wheels of power are undermining the foundations of Western civilization, literally. 
Often, this sort of anxiety-fueled rage and revenge is bound up not in the fear of a specific policy outcome, but with a more primal fear more akin to middle school, the fear of humiliation. It feels like a kind of death, the kind that leaves one exposed and ridiculed by the outside world. We just moved to a psychoanalyzation of people who think their worldview is being corrupted and think that the country is becoming antagonistic to their worldview. That's not where Christians who are supposedly engaged in the culture war should be standing. That's not where they should be lying. Now, again, if you want to come and tell me that you had to surrender on this issue in order to get that issue, I'm listening. I may disagree with you and think it was wrong, but I'm listening. The problem we're having is our politicians aren't doing that. They're advocating for progress which is really just expansive darkness in the name of compromise when it doesn't seem like any compromise is actually being given. Yeah, we're the ones. Yeah. Well, and we're not compromising. Up. We're just we're watching the proxies surrender and surrender and surrender and being told that how dare you be upset by that. No, no, no. How about you actually give me a rational explanation as to why you thought this was a good idea, and how about you actually stand for Christian principles in the world and not political principles? Right. In other words, what's your worldview? How does it influence what you're doing, and how does it influence where you stand? In Hunter's view, a resentiment posture is heightened when the group holds a sense of entitlement to greater respect, to greater power, to a place of majority status. This posture, he warned, is a political psychology that expresses itself with the condemnation and denigration of enemies in the effort to subjugate and dominate those who are culpable. Projection much? Yeah. <laughs> so in other words... This is happening on several different platforms. You know what I mean? It's just... There, I mean, there are different things that people are calling their sacred cow... You don't touch this. So in other words, how dare you be upset that every other group has a voice in the process but you? Right. Even though I'm here to represent you in this process and I claim to represent you. Therefore, your abrasiveness is now seen as what? Why don't you just relax and go along with what people want? Why don't, you, why don't you show a little respect for the humanity and a little sympathy for their worldview and viewpoints? Because it's already gone so far, and now people are looking at it and saying, we gotta, we got to do something about this. I think we talked about this. Somebody's got to do something about this. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not a real good place to be. No, it's a terrible place. And my point, though, is when every other institution is surrendering and the darkness is seemingly winning, the Christian rightly is concerned because there's coming a place where his abrasiveness and his standing firm is going to not just stand countercultural to some of the things around him. It's going to stand countercultural to everything around him. I think what it comes down to is that people of God need to be resolute in teaching Agreed. and training their children in the Agreed. way that they should go, and we should be moral people in, an, in a society that is clearly... They have no idea what morality is because it's anything that pleases them. That's that's the season and the reason. And we need to just realize that some of these things must happen because it's already been prophesied that they would happen. Well, agreed. But the, the, I think the I think the extension of that is 
the leadership that is supposed to be standing for these ideals they're not. isn't. And the reason they're not is because notice how much of this language is tone-based and mindset-based rather than worldview-based. So I made a point yeah, that, they're, they're, made a point from the very beginning that Christian, yeah. you you stand firm because you can't do anything else. But why is it that the Christian who enters into the public square has to seemingly surrender? And again, if you are in a business, like you are in a legislature, I'm listening. I understand things have to get done. You have to give and take on some things, some places you can't give and take on. you got to determine that before you get into that line of work, don't you? Certainly. And make those decisions and then do what you're supposed to do and do what you see is right. Mm. But the flip side is that, why is, what is the Christian mindset supposed to be towards the people that represent him when they're not standing firm on anything? And they're more concerned with what I'm asking for and they're not really concerned with what I'm asking for. They're more concerned with how I'm asking for it. No, I demand that you hold the line on Christian values. Why? Because you're a Christian running a Christian organization holding to Christian beliefs. Why are you surrendering to a culture? And the answer is because we're trying to win a culture by walking alongside of it. Mm. You don't. You win a culture by walking against it shining a light in the darkness and trusting yeah. the Holy Spirit to do his job. The fundamental background of all of this, which again, why I joke about Russell Moore, is you can't go along to get along and drag people into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit's got to do that work. And the only way he does that work is if we do the work that he's spurring us to do, which is to proclaim truth, to shine the light, and to stand against culture. Which means when we construct an institution, what should that institution do? That institution should stand against the darkness of the culture. Mm -hmm. And as we send people into these institutions, what should they do? The same thing. The minute they begin to tell me, well, I'm a little sympathetic to their viewpoints, um, bite me, get out. We should not be open and affirming. And I know that means in something in, in other terms, but I think that's the beginning of Agreed. the downfall, is they're open to the culture, and in some cases they even affirm the culture over the Scripture, and that's wrong. Agreed. So... Think it through. We're out of time. Mm. There's probably a little bit more we should deal with on this, but if nothing else, Christian, think through how you deal with the world around you and how the institutions you are a part of and that you support deal with the world around you. Where's your line? What are you willing to deal with? And can you justify it biblically? Because always remember, that's the standard. So what have we learned here today, children? <laughs> the world wants you quiet. The gospel demands your voice. And you must choose whom you serve. It's been that way since the beginning. It'll be that way until Jesus comes back. So pay attention. Walk carefully. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.